CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 4 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we share lessons from the world of high-stakes poker. What's it like to bet millions on the turn of a card? What can we learn about making better decisions and dealing with tough emotions under these extreme circumstances? We share a powerful strategy for managing your emotions in a crisis, show you how to make tough decisions like a professional poker player, and much more with our guest, Alec Torelli. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we unlocked the power of asking. When you ask for what you need, miracles can happen. But so many of us are too afraid to really ask, or we feel like we don't know how or what we should be asking for. How do you get better at asking? How can you tap the tremendous power and potential of the social capital within your network by using the power of asking? We asked and answered all of these questions and much more with our previous guest, Dr. Wayne Baker. If you want to finally ask for what you really want in life, listen to our previous interview. Now for our interview with Alec. Please note, this episode contains profanity. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show. Alec Torelli. 
Alec is an entrepreneur, motivational speaker, and professional poker player. As a poker player, Alec has won millions playing live cash games and some of the biggest tournaments live and online. As a coach and digital entrepreneur, he shares his knowledge and insights to help others achieve their life goals. He's been featured on ESPN, CBS Sports, the Travel Channel, and many more media outlets. Alec, welcome to the Science of Success. Hey, Matt. It's an honor. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we're super excited to have you on the show today. As many longtime listeners know, I'm an avid fan of poker and think there's so many lessons that can come out of poker to teach us to be better decision makers and live better lives. But I'd love to start the conversation out and explore a little bit. How did your poker journey begin and how did you become someone who played at some of the highest stakes imaginable? Good question. Yeah, it was a journey. I started playing at 16. I got invited to a friend's house and I won $12 or so my first time playing. And like they say, you know, the worst thing that could happen to someone that is betting or gambling is they win their first time because then they're hooked. And and I was extremely hooked. I loved it. I loved the fact that it was, there was a psychological component that I could beat my friends, that I could make money. And I seemed to have a knack for it. It was probably almost completely due to beginner's luck winning the first time. But of course, it went to my head and I thought I was some hotshot. And so that kind of just propelled me to keep playing the game and just get as good as I can and play as often as possible. And in high school, I really got serious about poker. I was playing after school every day that I could find a game. I was reading what limited books there were and talking with friends. And it became apparent that I was one of the better players in in the home games that I would play in and I would consistently win money. And when I later in high school, I started playing online poker. I had some good results early on. I remember one day after school, I went to a friend's house and I won a tournament. There was like 500 people that entered. I got first place and won over two grand, which in high school is like infinite money. You know, I was like going to retire. And so these early successes allowed me to like really remain enthusiastic about poker and keep pursuing it as much as possible. And when I was 18, I was at SMU in Dallas, Texas, and I was making a decent amount of money playing online poker. I'd saved up probably between 20 and 30, which was a lot for an 18 year old at the time in, in college. And I realized that I was slacking behind in, in university because I was dedicating so much time to poker. I was playing tournaments late at night on Sundays, staying up till four or five in the morning and then missing my economics class. And I realized like I'm at this crossroads where I could not become better at poker and move to the next level and achieve my goals of traveling around the world and playing in some of the biggest tournaments and cash games if I'm still in university. Like, and even athletes, not to compare myself, but like have the same dilemma. Like, should they stay in school or go to the pros? You just can't do both if you want to compete at the highest levels, right? Especially if you want to get a degree in focus and all these things. So I evaluated my worst case scenario and I realized, you know what? The worst thing that happens is I'm 19 years old. Like I give myself a year. I lose the 20 or 30 grand I saved. And I'm basically back in the same place as everybody else, except I'm one year older, which is not really that bad of a worst case scenario. I just lose a year of time, but I have this incredible experience and I get to test what it's like to live out my dream. The best case scenario is that like I make it somehow and I reach this goal and I'm traveling the world and I'm playing on the level that I see these people that I look up to on television playing in. And so that was a pivotal moment for me. And I really went all in at that time. And I had some good results after that, some ups and downs along the way. I mean, this was 15 years ago. So obviously it wasn't, you know, the rest wasn't all history, but it was making that choice that gave me the at bat 
to get the successes that later came. And shortly after that, things went really well for me. I moved to Australia because I couldn't play poker in the US and I wanted to compete in the biggest tournaments. And while I was there, I got up early one day to play an online tournament. Actually, it was the biggest tournament in history at the time. And I ended up winning. And I won over a quarter million in a day. And I was 18 or 19 at the time. And that year, I continued to play a lot of online poker. And I became one of the biggest winners in online poker on the biggest website at the time called Full Tilt. And so in cash games alone, I made over a million dollars that year. And I I feel it's sort of weird saying numbers, but unfortunately, that's the only way we have of keeping score. So I I can't tell you how many points I scored. I could just tell you how many dollars I won. So I I don't want this to come across the wrong way. But that's sort of our metric or it's our currency. So that really put me on the map and, and gave me those early successes that allowed me to continue throughout my poker journey. That's fascinating. And the full tilt reference, I was a full tilt player back in the day. And I remember it didn't have nearly the balance that you had on there. But I remember having all my funds frozen and everything when the site got shut down. Yeah, but, me too. Which I'm sure was much more problematic for you. But even the subtle mental model that you just shared just now is really interesting, which is this notion of evaluating the downside and making a decision which seems really controversial, something like dropping out of college. And yet you looked at it in a very rational way and realized that instead of carte blanche ruling it out or catastrophizing and thinking that, oh, I can't do that, my life will be over, you looked at it in a really rational perspective. And I think that's something that's missing in a lot of people's lives is this idea of looking at tough decisions and figuring out and actually logically mapping out what's really going to happen if I take this seemingly crazy risk. Yeah. And I have my parents to help thank for this instilling me this, this process. My dad is very analytical, logical. My mom gave me extreme amounts of confidence to believe in myself. And so I could confidently say at the time, this was before poker was really on the map 15 years ago, zero people that I talked to thought that dropping out to play poker was a good idea. So it really took a little bit of conviction there. And I I got that confidence from my mom's side. And then from my dad's side, it's really about the practical side of things and thinking things through and and being rational and logical about decision making. But I really feel like that skill set was amplified in poker because what you're taught is to separate the facts from the noise and not let emotions cloud judgment when making decisions and not let fear cloud judgment. So a lot of times in poker, you're in a big hand, right? Especially as I moved up in stakes and started playing, you know, bigger and bigger games, when one single bet could be, you know, 10, 50, $100,000 in a single bet, right? Not even a single hand, just a single bet within a hand. And, you know, in theory, you can look at it like you, this is the correct play, but it's another thing to be able to actually make the play. And what poker teaches you to do is really focus on the process of making the right decision, independent of how you're feeling in the moment. So independent of the fact that you may have just lost a big hand or what are other people going to think if you make a bonehead play and they see you turn over a bluff or how are you going to be critiqued or how are you going to be looked at on television by the rail or the people watching. And so that really served me well in these times when I needed to make big life decisions and separate those facts from the noise and really evaluate like what is the merit of this decision and i focused on something i tell myself still to this day at the tables i I talk to myself in third person it sounds ridiculous to do this i understand but i feel like a lot of times when you're in the first person and and it's you're involved in a situation emotionally that's when it clouds our judgment but by creating space between yourself and the situation, it's easier to see things objectively. And let me give you an example. If your friend asks you for advice about what he should do in a relationship or a personal situation, 
you usually have a clear answer and are pretty confident. But how come, how, why is it so true that it's so hard for us to see our own situations objectively? That's because we're involved in them. And so when you create that space between yourself and, and say, Alec, you know, what is the best decision here? What are the benefits of path A and what are the risks? And then to get those things down on paper concretely and evaluate them separately and then attribute, you know, like a score to them or an importance to them, right? Or to attribute a significance to each one of these factors really helped me analyze the situation and see clearly that really the only thing, there really was not that big of a downside. And really what was holding me back was the fear of the opinion of other people. That would have been the only reason why I didn't go through with this. And when you get to that place, it's just, you know, it's nonsense not to do it. So I think that poker really helped amplify this process for me. That's another critical perspective shift that is missing in so many people or that I think is such a critical skill set to really separating yourself from the pack to being a true risk taker is this idea of not letting other people's opinions hold you back or get in your way. Yeah, I think the idea is to be in a place where like, you know, you could listen to the opinion of others and like respect and take it into account, but always keep in mind that everybody's looking at the, the world from their vantage point. And they're, you know, you can't really ultimately make a decision based on someone else's opinion because they're attributing their values to your situation. And so ultimately only, you know, in your heart, what is right. You know, it's that guiding sort of intuition that everybody has where it's like the best decisions I feel like we make are ones where we just know instinctually what the right direction is. So for example, I talked about this in a keynote I gave where in poker, you sometimes use, you know, logic versus intuition to make decisions. Sometimes you use intuition to read other people. Sometimes you use logic to analyze the math, the numbers and their betting patterns. But when you think about your life decisions, you know, the biggest ones we make, I feel like most of the time you can, you could kind of weigh in the pros and cons. Like even when I was doing this, going to college, debating whether or not I should leave university, it was like, you can get everything down on paper, but then ultimately, you know, that process might help you come to a realization or give you confidence. But ultimately, if you close your eyes and in, in the stillness of your own silence, I feel like most people know what the right answer is for something. And so it's about listening to that as opposed to separating the voice of fear. And so, for example, I was together with my wife or my girlfriend at the time. And I was, you know, I remember asking a friend, like, how do you know if she's the right person? You know, because I was debating, I wanted to propose to her. And, but I was like, well, how do I know? Like, there's no guidebook for this. And you're not like taught this. And it's definitely, you know, making a huge decision like this. I don't want to get it wrong. And he's like, well, you know, you pick three things in a partner and, if they have those things that are the most important to you, you know, it's the right decision. And I'm like, well, okay, you know, Ambra on paper has these three things. She has many more and, and not a lot of things I don't like, but am I really going to like use this logical approach to make a decision? I'm like, no, this is, this doesn't even make sense, right? I'm not going to make a decision about whether or not to get married because, you know, someone checks my list of boxes. So I close my eyes and I just ask myself, Alec, you know, you have three seconds to decide, should you marry like it was renowned, yes. I just knew that this was the right decision. And so I didn't overthink it. I didn't like analyze it any further or whatever. I just bought a ring the next day and proposed. And, you know, we've been married six, seven years and, and things are great. So, I mean, it's like, I feel like in those situations, people know intuitively what the right decision is, but the key is, you know, trusting themselves. That's really interesting. There's a couple of things I want to break down from that. Let's start with this notion of logic versus intuition. 
Tell me more about how each of those factors into decision-making, both in a crucible like poker, where you're in these incredibly tough decision points, and you're in some cases betting the amount of money that might be a car or a house on the turn of a card. How do you think about weighing those two things and which do you think is more important? Good question. So in one of the biggest hands I played, it was televised hand and I, I got dealt a monster. I had three nines and you know, the book says to go all in. So I bet out 1100 or bet into this pot and my opponent raises me. And I immediately got a feeling like he had a strong hand. It was just an intuitive read I got. And maybe it's because he looked down at his chips. It's hard to sort of quantify these things. I could try and explain it later. And I have a YouTube video explaining my thoughts on this hand, but it's hard to sort of quantify why your intuition gives you a read about something, right? It's kind of like when you meet someone for the first time, like your intuition tells you right away if you like that person or not. And it's hard to put into words. It's not because they have a black shirt or their shoes or, or the color of their hair. It's just, you get a sort of feeling about them. And so that's what I'm looking for in poker and also in life as well. I'm listening first to the intuitive sort of read I get about a scenario, a person, a business deal, whatever it may be. Then I'm using logic to back up what my intuition says to see if it makes sense and if it checks out. So then I go through the hand I was playing against Chad, for example. I said, okay, you know, what types of hands is he going to raise me here? What types of hands is he going to bluff me here with? Is he really capable of bluffing on television? Is he really going to risk this much money in this spot with a bad hand? And so as I walked myself through the logical side of things, I then realized that those things were unlikely. It was likely he had a very strong hand and I folded. And it turns out, you know, he had a straight, I would have lost the hand if I continued. So it's about first and foremost, like understanding the relationship, but then also understanding that these two things actually work together. And I feel like in poker, as well as in life, people sometimes identify themselves or feel like they have to choose between one or the other. But I think when you look at the best decisions, like in the case of dropping out of university or marrying my wife, like the big decisions as well, these two things should actually work in, in harmony. There should be a marriage between these two things. And when in doubt, I always find that when I'm at the poker table, for example, there are times where they're in conflict. There are times when I feel like, for example, I know my opponent has a really good hand and I should fold, but then my rational mind starts talking and I tell myself things like, well, I can't fold this hand. My hand's too strong or, you know, the pot's too big. I can't fold. I'm committed. And so I start to override my intuition with the voice in my head. I start to override my intuition with logic and those are the situations where I pay the biggest price. It's when, and if you look at your life, I feel like these are things as well. It's when you know you shouldn't get involved with that relationship, but you do anyway because you talk yourself into it because you, know, you say these certain things to yourself and then you get involved and then you get in trouble. Or you, your intuition tells you you shouldn't get involved with this person. It's probably not the right business deal or you're too busy to take on another task or another project, but there's this opportunity and it's, it's going to be so important and, and there's all these logical reasons why you should do it, so to speak, and then kind of talk yourself into it. And then it turns out you should have trusted yourself the whole time. And so I feel like when they're in conflict, I try and let my intuition be my guidepost in decision-making. But you know, a really important caveat to this is that intuition is not emotion, right? So emotion is something like 
I'm frustrated. I'm losing at poker. I want to get my money back. I'm going to play really aggressive to try and win this next hand. That's not your intuition talking. That is your emotion. That's your ego. So I feel like, you know, having that space, that's why I'm always trying to create that space between the first person and third person to help myself emotion from the decision-making process because emotional decisions, unlike logical or intuition ones, intuitive ones are actually the worst decisions that that we can make. And those are the ones that cost people a lot of money at the poker table. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Bite.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Bite. Give me a sense of exactly how you talk to yourself. What does that actually sound like? It depends on where I am in the hand, but my process starts actually in the beginning. And I actually teach this to clients that I work with. If you think about like a tennis player and how they approach a point of tennis, you can see that they have like a very specific routine, right? They go through the process of, you know, dribbling the ball a certain amount of times, calling for the towel, and then like getting ready for the point and then throwing the ball up and serving. And so I created the same thing in poker. I call it a power routine. And so between every hand, you know, before the cards are even dealt, I'm trying to prime myself to focus on playing the next hand the best way possible. So while, you know, the hand's being dealt, I'll close my eyes for a half a second, take a deep breath and say, my focus is to play this next hand the best way possible. And that sort of allows the emotion or charge, whether it's positive or negative from the last hand to like, you know, step aside and me come back to the present moment and focus on my only objective right now. The only thing that I can control, the only thing that can make me, you know, win more money or earn more chips or whatever it is, is playing this next hand the best way possible. And that might be a trivial decision, like folding two terrible cards. That might be all I can do, but that is all I can do. And so I think that helps me eliminate the emotional side of things from the get-go by having a clear focus. Then a lot of times I'll be in the middle of a hand and sometimes I'll be facing a big decision. Let's say, you know, my opponent bets out a large amount of money or I know that it's the right situation to bluff with a large amount of money, but I'm scared. I'm scared because it's a large amount of money or I'm on television. What are people going to think if I make a mistake or he calls me or I'm wrong and all these thoughts that are going through my head, all this ego going through my head. So I will literally talk to myself in the third person. I'll say, what should Alec do here? And I'll pretend that I'm my friend giving me advice because it's so much easier for the friend to give advice. It's so much easier to tell someone else what to do. So instead of me being in the first person sitting at the table facing a $100,000 bet, I'll pretend that I'm watching Alec play poker and I'm just the friend sitting over his shoulder telling him, hey, look, you should fold. The guy has a strong hand or you should bet. The guy has nothing. It's clear this is the best play. Make it. 
And so then when I'm giving advice to Alec, then I could step back into the driver's seat equipped with the right information and my focus on making the best decision possible and leave fear and emotion by the wayside. And then I could execute on that play that it is required, that fearless aggression that really separates you know, the good players from the great ones. And so I try and do that. And I, I fall short many times, but I, at least I have the system. And I feel like the system really helps me execute in real time when the stakes are the highest. That's super helpful. Even that phrase of what should Alec do here? What should Matt do here? Pulling yourself out of that and imagining that you're giving advice to your friend who's playing is such a great tool that you could easily implement in in many different tough and and high stake situations. I mean, I do this all the time, like even in trivial situations, like for example, I kind of manage my own day, but everybody does to some extent manage their own time schedule. So sometimes I'll have free time. Like before this interview, I had 30 minutes and I said, okay, what should Alec do? And I try and pretend that I'm like, you know, sitting on the couch, looking at this person and thinking like, okay, what kind of day has he had? Is he stressed? Does he need to finish something? Does he need to relax? Does he need to read? Does he need to eat? Like, and so just like, it's easier to kind of understand what you should do or like, is Alec hungry or is he thirsty or is he stressed? You know, like what emotions are you actually feeling at this time or all these sorts of situations that I face on a daily basis because emotion is, is, is tough and it often leads us to do things that we think we want in the moment, but that we don't actually want long-term. So for example, you might, what you really want is to be in good shape and feel great and, you know, know that you're nourishing your body by exercising and eating healthy, but you don't want emotionally in the moment to have, you know, you want to have sugar and like simple carbs and you want to sit and watch Netflix. But what, you know, what you would want if you were thinking about it logically or long-term is to make a healthier choice and to exercise. But if you let that emotion get involved and make those decisions a lot of times, because I mean, a lot of days I get up and I emotionally don't want to exercise. But if I think about what is the best decision for Alec to make, it should be to get his ass on the bike and do his 30 minutes of hit training, you know? And so I let that be my guide. And then afterwards, I'm always grateful because you're always happy that you did the thing that you know was best and you reap the benefits of it. But in the moment, emotions sometimes speak loudly. And if you, you know, give into them, that's when I feel like, you know, you make mistakes in the macro and in the micro. That's obviously a very powerful strategy for dealing with emotions in some of these really tough situations. Are there any other tools that you use when you are sitting across the table with hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line, making these really difficult decisions? Like to separate emotion out of the situation? Yeah, dealing with the emotions in that kind of situation. Well, one thing that's really helped is just staying present and staying concentrated on the specific hand because emotions are only really usually when you latch on to a thought about the way you want something to be that it isn't currently right now. So for example... You are, you know, frustrated that you lost the last hand because, you know, you feel like you got unlucky and you, you know, entitled to win that pot. And so then holding on to that, I mean, that's just a thought, right? That's something that comes. And if you give it energy, it will stay in the consciousness of your mind and you'll be thinking about that. But then it's the latching on to the thought that exacerbates the emotion. It's not the thought itself. And a lot of times I don't, 
even know if we can control the thoughts that appear, but we can control whether or not we give attention to them. And so I feel like meditation has really helped in mindfulness, just staying present and, you know, observing the thoughts or to come by, but then not necessarily giving attention to the ones that are going to create an emotional state, a charged emotional state. So for example, I feel all the same things. I'm human. Like when I, let's say I get all my money and I'm 90% to win, this happened in the World Series main event. I was all in with aces and someone else had ace king. I'm 94% to win and I lose. But that happens all the time. And obviously, I feel all the same pain that other people feel. I feel frustrated. I feel annoyed. I'm like, curse my luck. Why did that happen to me? Those are thoughts that come. But I, I feel like what I try to do, and again, I fall short often, but what I try to do is to come back to the present moment, ask myself what I can focus on, and then pay attention to a more empowering thought. And so it's, you know, not focusing or giving attention to the thoughts that could lead to me being in a perpetual negative emotional state. And that's a big one. And I think that happens and it serves me well in my life too. When like something stressful happens to me or doesn't necessarily happen to me, I I don't want to say it that way, but just I'm encountering a moment of potential stress in my day for something goes wrong in the business or who knows, a million different things. Having a system to let that go and to focus on a new thought, a new you know energy pattern is really has really helped me. So I feel like meditation, I got to credit a lot for that. And that's been a practice I've been working on for four years. You mentioned a couple times this notion of falling short, whether it's your mindfulness goals or using the right emotional management strategies in some of these tough situations. But the lesson behind that is another key takeaway in performance at its highest levels. And that's this notion that it's not about being perfect every single time and collapsing and giving up and beating yourself up when you don't do it perfectly. It's having these routines and strategies. And even if you adhere to them 30% of the time or 50% of the time or whatever, you create a huge edge over a long enough time sample just by having that little difference and not getting so frustrated that you don't do it every single time. Yeah, self-love or whatever you want to call it, forgiveness is is self-forgiveness is something that's difficult. I think we all struggle with it. But what I try to remind myself is, you know, Roger Federer hits balls in the net and I'm never going to live up to his level, you know, in poker, probably anything in terms of his prowess in sport. So, of course, I'm going to make mistakes at the poker table. And I feel like, you know, worst enemy, my own toughest critic. And I feel like we have to have that if we want to improve. You know, you have to hold yourself to very, very high standards. In fact, it's arguably the standards you hold yourself to that determine how far you'll get, right? So you have to have those standards. But at the same time, especially after losing days, I'm very critical about how I played. Even on winning days, I'm very critical about all the hands I I play. I write them all down. I come back. I run them in the lab. I run them by my friends who give me brutally honest feedback. But then at the same time, I try and congratulate myself along the way for little milestones. Like, you know, even after a hand where I'm like, Alec, you know, I think it's okay. And this is something I only started doing recently. Again, this is something I've, I've struggled with this, this self-love thing, but I say, and I'll allow myself to say to myself without feeling like I'm, you know, praising myself for no reason, but I'll allow myself to say something like, Alec, you played that hand really well. Like give yourself a little bit of reward or congratulations on the way, instead of just always you know, beating yourself down when you make a mistake. But I think that's fine. But you also have to give yourself that praise and reward and accomplishment, the feeling of accomplishment that you're doing well along the way. And so even little things like after a workout now, I'll like 
pat myself on the back figuratively, so to speak, or like reinforce something positive in my thoughts mentally about myself that I'm proud that I actually did this as opposed to just only holding yourself to that expectation. And then every day you don't have a workout, you feel guilty and you're like, oh, I'm useless or, you know, for God, or every time you derail from your diet or whatever, you know, you're a failure, you make a mistake. It's, it's also about encouraging yourself the times that you do well. And I think, you know, I'm not a little above my pay grade, but I think the science on this is conclusive too, that people respond better to positive reinforcements than they do to, to negative ones. And so I've tried to implement that in my own life and my professional life and my personal life as well. And it's, it's gone a long way. It's something I wish I did sooner. Yeah. The research uses a lot of times the term self-compassion for for all of that kind of encompassing perspective on self-forgiveness and not beating yourself up. And we'll throw, we have some really good episodes that go deeper in that, that we'll throw into the show notes for the listeners. I want to change directions a little bit and talk about the decision-making process that comes out of poker. And, and it's okay to use some examples from poker situations, but there's so many powerful lessons that you can learn about making decisions in uncertain conditions where there's a lot of risk, where there's a lot of things at stake from poker that apply to such broad areas of life. And I know personally, it's been an incredible learning tool for me. And I want to hear your perspective on some of the decision-making strategies and lessons that you've taken from poker that you have applied more broadly. Big question and a good one. So one of the things I think poker teaches you to do is to evaluate things based on the merit of the play and not the outcome. So you can make the right decision and still lose the hand. And that's something that's often hard for people to grasp because I think we're taught that the efficacy of our decisions relates directly to the outcome. Like you move your pieces well on a chessboard, you win the game. You answer correctly on a test, you score very high. Uh, But this is not necessarily true in all areas of life because there's randomness, there's luck, there's variance. You can make a poor decision like drinking and driving and get home safe, or you can make a great decision like leaving a party early because you have to get up early the next day to study or to spend your time doing something that you value more. That would be a good decision, but you could also get in an accident on the way home. But I feel like the response that people generally have is like, oh, I shouldn't have left that party early. I never would have gotten that accident. And it's like, well, you didn't make a wrong decision for leaving the party. You just got kind of unlucky, so to speak, that you maybe got in an accident, assuming you weren't drinking and driving. It wasn't your fault. That's just – that's variance. That's that's randomness. And this happens a lot too with things like – I think poker teaches you to think about the expectation of your decisions as well. So, for example, you know, also evaluating decisions based on their merit. Like, for example, you hear people say all the time something like, oh, we all know smoking is bad. Let's say on average – you know, if you have a sample size poke, depending on how often and when they start, but let's just say on average, it takes 10 years off your life, right? We don't know. I don't know the exact number, but let's just say it's 10 years. So the decision to smoke has the expected value, the, the expectation of negative 10 years of life. So therefore it's a bad decision. But then you'll hear people using an N1 sample saying something like, well, my grandma smoked and lived to 90. But like, that doesn't make smoking a good decision, right? So the, there's always these outlier examples that maybe she would have lived to 105. I don't know, but maybe it just doesn't affect everyone the same way. But the point remains that 
the decision still has an expectation. And so because you can't know the future, right? you don't know what's going to happen, you have to evaluate decisions based on their expectation. And you do this in poker all the time. You know, you're at the table, you don't know which cards are going to come. You just calculate the probabilities and say, okay, well, I'm expected to hit my flush 30% of the time. Therefore, I'm going to play the hand this way. You could hit it four times in a row, but that doesn't change the fact that on the fifth time, the odds are still the same. And so I think about life very much in the same way, even when it's evaluating things like whether or not to run an ad campaign. You think, okay, like what is the cost? What is the sale price? And what is the expectation that you're going to gain per ad that you promote and all these sorts of things? So I feel like it really has helped me think about the way I see the world and the way I really strategize about making life decisions as well. You brought up so many good points there that I want to dig into. The notion, there's even a subtle mental model that you shared with the example of the grandma, which is perfect. I want to unpack this idea of making decisions or the fallacy of making decisions with an N of one and using these illusory examples. And and the other piece of that, which is so interesting that you mentioned, which is that you don't see the other outcome with something like that, right? So you see somebody whose grandma smoked and lived to 90, but that might be masking the fact that she could have lived longer if she hadn't smoked. And so there's all of these hidden probabilities and outcomes that you don't necessarily see when you're only evaluating these really small or individual sample sizes. Yeah, it's so true. That's a great point. Another one that I've thought about too is that outcomes aren't binary, right? So I think I was talking about this the other day to someone where it was like, well, you evaluate a situation and the expectation is that it's either going to happen or not going to happen. Like, for example, you are deciding whether or not to, you know, go to school and get a traditional job. And that is considered a safe route, right? That's like, okay, that's safe. Whereas, you know, investing or being an entrepreneur and and opening a startup is risky. So I think where people go wrong is they don't properly attribute the probability of each one of these outcomes. And they just look at it like binary, like one is safe, therefore my risk is zero. And the other one is risky, therefore my risk is, you know, 100. And we know that's not true. There are plenty of people that go to school and that can't get good jobs or there's risks involved. There's college debt and there's maybe they get fired from the job. Maybe the company goes under, right? And I'm not saying that you should not go to school and do a startup. I'm just saying like, it's important that we attribute the proper risks and percentage, so to speak, to each each option that we have. And so it's it's not like these things are binary. There's some inherent risk in every decision we make. Right? Nothing is 100 or zero. And it's not guaranteed that you're going to fail you know, having a startup, obviously. But so your chance of success in one route may be 10% and the other route may be 50%, but it's not like zero and 100. And so I think thinking in terms of like the probability of an outcome is the best way to attribute an accurate answer to it. And I think poker really teaches you to do this, right? It's not like, you know, I went all in, like I'm going to, I'm a hundred percent to win or 0% to win. You know, you win based on your probability. So you're going to win the hand, let's say 70% of the time, but 30% of the time you're still going to lose. So you need to be prepared mentally or financially or whatever it is for that outcome. And then also being more aware of the probabilities of decisions lets you better plan for them. If you know that you're 
to succeed in a certain path that you're going or a campaign or whatever it is is only 70% to succeed, you could properly evaluate whether or not you want to take that risk. But 70 is not 100. And there's a huge, huge difference there. And I think poker really helps people see that. That's a great perspective. And I like to think of it in terms of black and white, right? Most things in life are not black and white. There's all these shades of gray. And even if you're looking at something as a yes or a no, even if you just add in a maybe that it might happen, you've increased the amount of options by 50%. Even if you expand to a field of, you know, there's a one out of 10 scale, right? You've essentially 5x the amount of decision-making clarity that you have in evaluating the outcomes of that perspective. And the deeper and more granular you get in evaluating probabilities, the more effective and the better your decision-making gets. Totally. That's a great one. Well, the the other thing that you mentioned earlier that I think is, is so important is that most people operate under the illusion that good decisions lead to good outcomes. But the real world is much messier than that. In business, in life, in investing, there's a huge amount of variance, of noise, of sometimes opposite results that separate decision and outcome. And it's really hard to get space and actually evaluate whether you made the right decision when you're letting the outcome cloud the evaluation of the decision process. Yeah, I think people typically radically in poker, and I've noticed this in poker, which has made me reflect on this about life as well, but radically underestimate the role that luck plays. We like to think, you know, we're definitely responsible for all of our everything that all of our successes and those sorts of things. But I think one thing that poker made me realize is just like how lucky we are to even have the at bat And that's something that I think most people just take for granted automatically. It's just like being dealt a winning hand is a prerequisite to succeeding in a lot of ways. And some people, you know, are beat the odds and and aren't dealt as good of hands as other people, but arguably like they're all sort of winning hands. And the way I like to think about it is like half the world was dealt a hand where they live on 250 a day or less, right? That's just like not something that anybody chose. That's just you're starting two cards. And that reality is very hard to rise up out of. Of course, there are some people that do it, but the odds are extremely stacked against you. So if you are not part of that 50%, you're dealt you know, a winning hand, you're born in the first world, and you do you know, prosper to start a company and those sorts of things, the luck sort of preceded that. It gave you the at-bat. Of course, you have to make great decisions along the way. And I think playing your hand well is ultimately going to manifest over time. But I think we should be more grateful, and I include myself in this, but just be grateful for the incredible luck that has been bestowed on probably everyone listening. Just the fact that you're listening means you've you've already sort of won. And then I think people typically evaluate things in a short sample size. And so I think we typically are impatient, like all of us to, to a large extent are, are impatient and we want to win, you know, in poker, we want to win during our next session. So we lose one session, two sessions, three sessions in a row. We're like, ah, this sucks. I want to win now. But if you look, you zoom out and you look at things over a large enough sample, if you play your hands well and you make enough good decisions, the better players always win over time. But the thing is that people are evaluating their results in the short term, in a short time window. And in a short time period, anything could happen. Bad players can win. Good players can lose. And even events that happen in our lives can seem 
bad if we label them that way when they happen in a short time frame. Like you, for example, get fired from a job. If you evaluate that in a time frame of a week, you can place the label bad on that event that happened. But if you zoom out and, you know, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. So it's, it's, it's very hard to label something as bad, even if you do zoom out. But if you look at your past, certain things that happened that you labeled as bad in the moment, like, for example, a breakup probably ended up being good, albeit painful in the, at the time, because it might have led you to find your current partner or your wife and that, that you now have kids with or whatever. Right. So it's like, I think we label things too often in the short term, but I Hanging out and looking at the big picture really helps create some space there and not make those events as as painful to deal with. So I think those are those are two other things that poker's made me reflect on. Really, the role of luck in in life as well, and that's really just made me a more grateful person. And part of that was traveling to Southeast Asia when I lived in Macau. I was playing the biggest poker games in the world were were in Macau, and so I was living there playing. And traveling to Southeast Asia really made me realize firsthand about the former thing about being dealt a winning hand and just how many people weren't. And so that's really helped me in poker. When I feel down on my luck, I, I try and think about that and that, you know, no matter what happens to me at the poker table, I'm still running pretty good. That's great perspective and a really powerful mental model that you can pull from poker and think about the world at large. Yeah. And I don't want to sound like some saying here. I have shitty days too. I, I, <laughs> I have times when I'm like frustrated or stressed or just like, complain about stupid things all the time. But I, I try and again, at least have these systems that I can fall back on or these theories that I know are are true to help me in those tough times. Because, you know, emotion, like we talked about, is a powerful force. So I try. Tell me a little bit about your strategy for prioritizing what's important in life. Well, it's another big question. So I have what I call a North Star, and I definitely didn't coin this term, but it's this guiding principle that I think are what is fundamentally important in my life. Like what are the things that I am going to use to base all my decisions on? Like what is the currency that I'm really trying to optimize for? And for me, it's it's mainly about freedom, but also excitement and choices. So when I think about whether or not I'm going to take on a new project, it could be easy without these defining principles to perhaps say yes for the wrong reasons. Most notably, if it takes up an extreme amount of my time for a financial gain, I might be tempted to do it. But if I look at what it's going to do in the construct of maybe locking me to a place for four years, I might think twice about it because I realize that that wouldn't fit into the lifestyle that I ultimately want to live and the things that I value. So I feel like this helps in the macro with the big decisions that I make, but also in the micro, like even things like my spending priorities, for example, it's easy to, I feel like spend in areas that don't serve our highest needs. And when I think about where I'm trying to channel a lot of my resources, it's mainly towards things that will give me more freedom. And I know that if I am conservative and save, I can buy back my time and I can allocate more money towards things like travel, which is fills a lot of the freedom element, but also the excitement element in my life. And so I try and be cognizant of where things are going to better channel my resources, my time, money towards my highest priority items in life. And that's some of the big picture decision-making process. 
that I go through. And in many ways, the lessons from poker, the decision-making strategies that we've been talking about have helped shape that perspective. It's so easy to get caught up in the minutia of life and pulled in many different directions and reacting to everything that happens and all of the things that are going on. But it's so critical to come back to the center, to figure out what actually matters. What are your goals? What are your priorities? What's really important to you? And not stray too far off that path because most of us, and I include myself in this, can easily get pulled in a million different directions. And if you don't figure out what really matters to you and walk a path towards it and put yourself back on that path every time you fall off, it's really, really easy to get off course. Yeah, I've tried to, like in poker, I always tell my my clients and students, like, you know, before you make any bets, think about why you're making the bet and what you're trying to accomplish. And so I've really taken that to the bank when it comes to things that I'm trying to do in my life as well. It's like before I decide, like I'm I'm writing a poker book, for example, I'm in the process of doing it, I'll be done in December. But I really try to think about like, this is a big decision, right? Like it's going to lock a period of time and I'm going to have to put other projects on the side. So I really try to think about, you know, how is this going to help me achieve my business goals or my personal goals? And like, where does this fit into the big picture plan? And I think, you know, without that process, it's easy to just kind of like let schedule or time or your attention be filled up with these sort of like almost arbitrary miscellaneous things like right it's almost like whatever comes at you you know you need a process for making these decisions and i think defining what people really want and what's you know what their north star is is an important process of it and then it's about mapping really your actions and ambitions towards that right so making sure that the decisions you're making are getting you closer not drawing you further away and I see this quite often where people like aren't really like matching these two things. So for example, I had a lot of friends that say that their North Star is something like, you know, traveling often. And then they will do something that completely inhibits that, like spending a lot on a car or on rent or buying a dog or like all these things that like seemingly make that aim a lot more difficult. And they just do it getting caught up in peer pressure or society or emotion or, or or whatever it is. But it's like, I feel like just kind of identifying what it is that's, that's really important and then mapping all of those actions towards that big picture of like, is this going to help me get more of that or less of that? And is it worth that cost or that sacrifice is a good starting point. Great advice. And for listeners who have been listening to this conversation, who want to concretely take action or implement something that we've talked about today, could be about prioritization, decision-making, emotions, whatever, what would be one piece of homework or one action item that you would give them to start concretely taking action on something that we've discussed today? Oh, man. I guess it just depends on what topic was the most exciting to them and where they found the most, what they resonated the most with. I mean, it could be something as simple as taking up a meditation practice, like something I would wish I could have told myself two decades ago. Or it could be something like just thinking about making logical decisions instead of emotional ones, like asking yourself in the third person, what should Alec do in this moment? Should Alec eat this piece of cheesecake or not? And maybe the answer is yes. It's, it's not like you shouldn't ever do those things, but it's just like understand, you know, use that self-awareness to, to understand like, is this the right decision and why? And sometimes Sometimes I do it, <laughs> you know, like, why not? 
another thing could be getting clear about your personal goals. And I find that the anchor of this whole thing is finances, right? Money is a really a tool that gives you options. And so I think the best place to start is tracking your spending. And one exercise that was extremely eye-opening that I did, and, and I've done this in various countries that I've lived in different times in my life, is just tracking every single dollar I spend. There's a great quote, I think I think it's by Peter Drucker, what gets measured gets managed. Actually, it might not be by Peter Drucker. I might be butchering that. But anyway, that's definitely the quote. It might not be by the person. But what gets measured gets managed. And it was really through tabulating every single dollar I spent and then categorizing that spending that I got clear on where every dollar was going. And just the process of doing it makes one more accountable. And they'll find that they probably naturally spend less just by being accountable with their spending by writing it down and being forced to look at the spreadsheet at the end of the month or whatever it is, whatever system you use. But that really can help people channel their resources towards things that are more important to them. So I think that's a great place to start. I have exercise like worksheets that are free on alectorelli.com about how I do this and how I set goals and create an action plan and then map my spending and my daily steps and actions towards achieving those goals. So that could be a resource for people that are looking to do that. Yeah, those are some good places to start. I love that suggestion. Something so small and this idea of just starting with your budget, realigning your resources with what your actual goals are is a great concrete action step to beginning to align your life with what you want it to be. Yeah, I find that like it's going to be people almost and having clients or people that have given me feedback and myself included when I've done this, there's almost always 20% or so of one's budget that's going towards things that aren't their highest priorities. And they could usually cut that out and reallocate that. And that could make a huge difference if that, you know, whatever, $2,000, $3,000 a year is going towards instead of a new iPhone, it's going towards a trip to Asia. Like, I mean, like it could be as simple as that. Like, just don't upgrade you and your girlfriend's iPhone, save $2,000 and wait an extra year and go to Asia. Like, it could just be so simple. I mean, it could be more complicated, but I mean, there's so many things that I feel like are easy wins in the finance category. So I would really implore everyone to try that out. And there's going to be some eye-opening results there for people. And Alec, for listeners who want to find more of you, your work, your advice, et cetera, online, where can they do that? I'm very active on social media at Alec Torelli everywhere. I have a YouTube that has a lot of poker strategy and some lifestyle content as well. Conscious Poker YouTube or Alec Torelli. And then alectorelli.com for my personal content. And if you want to learn poker strategy, Conscious Poker is my poker training site. You can go to ConsciousPoker.com and there's tons of resources to help people reach that next level in poker. So that's a little bit of how to stay in touch. But I'd probably say Instagram, I'm pretty active on. So shoot me a DM, say hi, and let me know you saw me on Matt's podcast. I'd love to say, hey, I'm very active on there. So Awesome. Well, Alec, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom. I always enjoy digging into some high stakes poker. Thanks, Matt. This was awesome. Appreciate you having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T -T at successpodcast.com. 
I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Mm -hmm.